This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is next for IT modernization and digital transformation within the U.S. federal government? How else can federal technology transform the lives of citizens? And what does the future hold for federal IT? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Suzette Kent, former Federal Chief Information Officer. Suzette, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, sir. It's great to be here again. So by way of introduction, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your previous leadership role, and that is a federal chief information officer, uh, which you recently left. So you know, what are the responsibilities and duties of the federal CIO? Absolutely. And uh, the, so, so the role of the federal CIO in the executive branch is, is primarily focused on development of policy specific statutory obligations around both oversight and um, review of how well agencies are meeting and achieving goals that are set both in that policy um, and then key priorities of the administration. And so in that role, many of the things that I focused on early was, was ensuring that policy was current and was empowering to agency CIOs so that they could take advantage of the best of what was available, you know, in our technology environment to meet mission. Um, Another part of the role is to work with agencies to support them in ensuring that they can meet their mission objectives through use of technology, which means working with the budget team. It means working with other teams, whether that be on the executive branch side, the agencies, um, partnership across agencies, CIO council, uh, various funding mechanisms, and working with the Hill as they look at new laws that may have implications on how agencies operate in that technology realm. And some of the areas that have been really important is increasing um, our focus on modernization and digital transformation, the quality of the services that are delivered to citizens, and it's supported by, you know, our federal IT community is over 90,000 individuals, and we have a $92 billion budget. So those are very serious responsibilities, and we also invest in ensuring that the you know, skill sets of individuals are supported as well. So it's a, you know, that covers a lot of space, but if I bold it down to one thing, that the team and I, so the office, the, the team members at the office of the federal CIO, our federal CISO, um, and working with the councils, I really viewed our role as enabling 
enabling the technology teams of agencies to deliver on their mission through use of technology. So all those things I talked about, uh, we kind of wrapped into that overall mission objective. That's a wonderful summation and description and really underscores the, the important role of the federal CIO, the expansiveness of its portfolio and responsibility, and how important technology is as an admission enabler for federal agencies. It really is about putting the mission first. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about your approach to being uh, the federal CIO? How did you distinguish yourself from or do things differently than your predecessors? Um, well, I think I, I approached it. So I, I came from industry. Um, I spent almost 30 years in financial services and global technology, large-scale transformation, um, very often heavily regulated industries. So I looked at the situation in terms of best practices, um, achievement, you know, the, the things that are going on in the rest of the world, and what I know of, of expectations of American citizens and assess what were the barriers, what was getting in the way, you know, what, what did the team look like? There's some incredibly talented individuals that are part are leading and part of the technology teams across the agencies. Um, but sometimes there were antiquated policies in place. There were processes that were developed maybe two decades ago that weren't really helpful or applicable in the way that we operate today. And in all of those things, we had to move much more quickly, especially as we looked at, again, citizen expectations, digital delivery, um, cost factors, and the scale at which we operate. And, and so, you know, when I came into the role again, I looked at it as our job is to deliver on the obligations of this office as they exist in law, the priorities of the administration, but most of all, to be enablers of agency-specific mission. So that really pointed to the sets of priorities that I focused on. There, there are so many things that we could do. You can't do all of them at, at the same time and execute them well. And that's where we use both the PMA as well as the CIO Council to hone in on those things that were going to drive the biggest impact and we could drive things that we could do near term and things that were critically important for the long-term strategy of our nation. So Suzette, I want to talk about the scale and cost associated with federal IT that you mentioned and some of the key initiatives being forward-looking. And one of the priorities is shared services and the advent of quality service management officers. What do you see next in the area of shared services in the federal government around IT? Well, thank you for that question. And, and I hope what we see uh, is not only development of that robust marketplace, but we see improved services going to agencies so that we see agencies move faster in adopting. And we start to move up that chain of not only improved services, but common expectations of those services. And then we will also move into, um, as we complete transitions, more efficient delivery, which in, in many cases may mean a better cost structure uh, for a better set of services. And, and, and let me give you a, a hard example of that. You know, again, coming out of industry, um, I worked with companies around the world where I saw this same kind of paradigm applied in a great value proposition. And the areas that we focus on for shared services are things where across 
the federal government and agencies, they agreed we are supposed to operate by the same standards. The standards are the same. So the expectations, if I choose payroll as an example of an employee of the federal government and how they are paid, whether they're agency X or agency Y, they're governed by the same rules and they should have very similar expectations. But the fact that, you know, we have interpreted those differently through all the different providers makes it very difficult to react quickly and for employees to expect a common outcome. So many times if they move between agencies, they have all kinds of challenges to get their leave right or, you know, their time and service right or why is this amount versus this amount. Um, And when we look at it from a purely financial standpoint, we're spending money on the exact same thing. And it would be very different if there weren't solutions that could scale. Uh, you know, we, we as the federal government, um, we are one of the largest enterprises in the world. Um, and so, so that, that in itself requires a certain type of player. Uh, but, but there are solutions out there that can operate at that scale. Uh, the other really important thing, and we saw this as we've been not only responding to current challenges with the coronavirus, but any type of information gathering and being data-driven. We spend a lot of time trying to pull together data from disparate systems. And sometimes when you're trying to act with urgency, that's wasted time. So when we have, you know, more, uh, when we we are operating off common standards where we can get to common systems, common data protocols, common databases, that's going to enable us to move more quickly, whether that's a regulation change, whether that's an emergency response, or whether it's just good service for an employee or a citizen. Suzette, I want to go from shared services that like to transition to digital transformation. And what's next for the federal IT in the area of digital transformation? What will that entail? What we got done was the infrastructure, the permission, meaning how we can deliver some of the digital services. Uh, and, and you might think that that is a small thing, but it is not. <laughs> you know, we've had digital signature forever. We've had services that are delivered via web and mobile. And some cases, you know, we had to accelerate adoption, you know, other things. But the services and the places where we have expanded digitally have been metered and measured by both available resources and ways that we can drive adoption. In some cases, if it was really easy for, for me just to hand you a piece of paper, what's my incentive? How, you know, did I, did I really move forward? We've now had something that created a, a reason not to have that person-to-person contact. And agencies had been thinking about how they could transform processes for, and, and deliver mobily quite a bit, but they, they couldn't do them all at the same time capacity, risk, resource, whatever kinds of you know, things. Now we have an opportunity to push those forward. So what we have seen is investments. And again, some of these were things that, that we've done over the last couple of years. We picked the most important set of services and significantly invested in those. And both the customer, what the, what the experience of the, the individual using those services is like, how those services are presented, the language, the functionality, but those were, that was the starting point. Where we should be going is expanding that list of services to kind of the list that agencies have looked at, as well as 
re-engineering things that are still paper-based. And I think that's the next big hurdle. Some things, it's pretty easy to take a paper form and make it a web form, right? But why aren't we changing the business process? Why do we have to fill out that form anyway? Why do we have to fill out 15 forms when maybe I already have the information and a citizen can ask for one or two things and that be a much more seamless process? So, so the next vista is continuing down the path of services that we have not digitally transformed and looking at not just enabling paper-based activities and you know the person-to-person contacts, but changing the nature of the way we deliver those services in real business transformation that will help us reduce errors kind of in the back end and will also make the servicing easier for citizens. So, Suzette, I'd like to dig a little deeper in the area of identity management. What else needs to be done? What does the future hold for identity management in the federal IT area? Well, while we're trying to do good things, there are people out there who are trying to do bad things, right? If I'm, if I'm being making it really, really simple. Um, and identity is critical to how both someone requests services and we allow services. It's also critical to what we allow individuals to do. And I know in shows like this and others, we've talked about zero trust as a, from a concept, but you know that's a way that you, you think about and you build your security protocols and you look at all the information and criteria around an individual, not just what name and ID and you know maybe uh, multi-factor authentication things they use, but like where's their activity coming from? Is this consistent with their history? Maybe there's biometrics I can pick up, you know, in the way they type or the sequence of how certain activities are performed. There's lots of things that we can do. And the more secure that we can make an interaction, the more trust we build with the citizens that we're serving, we are given the privilege of housing information and and serving citizens on our federal networks. And we have to protect that. And when I, again, I reflect back to industry, protecting customer information is the lifeblood of many of the industries in which I worked. It is, you know, kind of front and center. It's important to trust. And so as we seek to do more in mobile and digital channels, we have to harden how we identify individuals and how we help balance the privilege of what we can do. I, I, I was just reading a headline the other day about maybe some areas looking at use of more sensitive information in more electronic channels. That means the identity components have to be even more elevated. And uh, I know we that you know there's lots of discussions going on. We updated the identity uh, policies uh, while I was there to reflect the difference between human activities and what we see coming in from bots and what we see from automation tools. As we collect information and use data more, uh, we're going to have to embed some of that you know identity into evaluation of incoming information and access to information. So it's part of the journey, but it's really important that the identity advancement is an objective that's at the table while we are moving into expanded digital um, capabilities. 
So Suzette, as a follow-up, and we can continue on the idea of identity management, but when you're developing a policy, how important is it to make sure the policy you know, can set the bar high enough so that uh, when it comes to a technology, there's enough contemplated in that policy? Um, it, it's both. We don't want to put out a policy that we can't achieve, right? That's, that's not helpful. <laughs> no, that is not enabling. As a matter of fact, that's kind of the problem in some of the things, you, you know. But we also, in the policy, have to set a bar that is high enough that in many cases, not all technologies meet that bar, not all behaviors, right? Especially when we talk about identity and, and information management. Yes, there's a lot we can do with technology. There are still some components that are behavior-ridden. If, if you take all your verification information and put it on a poster or fill it out on a you know, little Facebook questionnaire, I can't help you much <laughs> from the technology perspective, right? So there's uh, there's multiple pieces to it. But I often, uh, it's very interesting in some forums that I've spent with uh, individuals from other countries and looking at what they're doing and comparing it. Sometimes people will say, well, how come this country can do this? Or how, how come, you know, so-and-so does that? They approach identity. You know, we have different approaches to identity in the world. And the way that we manage ours in the U.S. is some reflection of our privacy and American values. And so, you know, we have to, in places that we, ha we have to harden that, there are other places where we have to ensure that we're embedding the right approach to privacy and um, individual choice. So, Susan, that's a great point. And I was wondering, during your tenure as federal CIO, how often and how, how wide did you engage with foreign colleagues and allies? There was definitely engagement, and there were great dialogues. Um, many of our allies, we are doing some of the same things. Um, and when you look at what technologies are available, go, go back to some of those criteria, can operate at scale, can operate in secure environments, um, have a commitment to staying current. That means we're working with some of the same partners. When we also look at where we're going with automation, be it AI or high-performance computing, there's a limited set of global players. So we're having similar conversations. And whether some of those conversations are through OECD, where we have you know, some global ideals about how we use technologies to support citizens and support you know, democratic nations, um, or whether it's discussions tactically about you know, how do you fund a move to shared services? What do you support centrally versus what do you support, you know, from an agency perspective? Believe me, when I talk to other countries, we have way more agencies than they have ministries or departments or, you know, they kind of say, whoa, that's, that's a lot. Um, as well as some of the critical utilities, whether it's telecommunications, energy infrastructure, some of those things operate differently in other countries. So there's value um, as we try to solve complex problems and, you know, just understanding how others are looking at it, um, it's definitely not a one-to-one -one in most cases, but the value of those dialogues and looking at their experiences uh, can be good input, you know, to what we're considering and, and ways that we form both policy and agencies begin taking steps, you know, towards certain sets of actions. 
Suzette, you've mentioned how important data is in the federal government. And during your tenure as federal CIO, you led the cross-agency priority goal around data as a strategic asset. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. And what do you think can be done to strengthen and facilitate this in the federal government going forward in your mind? Now, that's a big question. <laughs> so, Jay, we could talk about that for, for a while. So, as, as the North Star, you know, being data driven is something that we aspire to. Uh, I think, as particularly as you know, our society has so many forms of information, but in making important decisions um, for a very wide and diverse population, it's really important. To, to be centered on actual information. And so the things, we set a, a multi-year strategy so that we could be moving towards that, even if we didn't have the answers for everything today. But it also gave us the ability to start to build the roadmap and do tactical things. And data sharing is a great example. And I'm, and, and I'm going to answer this one a little bit tactically so that your listeners will, will have a perspective. Um, when you look at the role of a CIO, so back up, what, is, what are some of the things a CIO is legally obligated to do? They are legally obligated to protect the data and information on the federal networks inside their agency. So that is a very important responsibility. So when I say I'm going to share, and certain agencies by law are to collect certain information and do certain things with those. That is defined by law. So when I choose to do something else, even if I'm sharing it with another federal agency, I have to be very careful and very thoughtful that I'm still doing what is, what is enabled and, and authorized by law and what is in alignment with the citizen who trusted me with that information and how, how they believe I'm going to use it. So those are reasons why the year one action items and those that are for year two that the team is is working on now that I know, you know, Maria um, and the Federal Data Council will be sharing more about in times to come. We focused on things uh, that, you know, I will call building a healthy infrastructure and increasing the skills and elevating the dialogue about sharing. So, so that means things like in data inventories, common data structures agreements around certain protocols for sharing. You know, do I have to anonymize the data? Is it still useful if I anonymize it? Is there a way to de-identify it? What can I share? And, and what do I have to um, inform citizens, you know, that I'm doing with information? So many of those tools, you know, we have researchers who have to go out to 10 different agencies and do all their individual data sharing with every single agency differently. We're trying to bring that together so that you know, the outcome, we can get to answers in research faster, but we're still managing the data in the right way. When the federal government shares data with others, they have to go in and audit that whomever they, whether that's a state or a local government or, you know, some, uh, some other party, they have to go in and ensure that they are handling it in a way that aligns with, you know, the right laws and authorities. So it's a, it's not a simple answer. So the, the first set of focus was protocols for doing it right. And the very first priority was to 
to, to go, going back to uh, kind of how we started the interview, what do you focus on? The very first priority in the year one action plan was define what questions you want to ask. What, what questions are you trying to answer? Um, and drive data, you know, drive some of your protocols and your, you know, from that perspective. And I'll give you, here's again, another kind of great and interesting example that came out as we were looking at the response to coronavirus. Agencies need local mar- local health information. Every agency deciding what they could do in certain markets, whether that was bring employees back or whether that was provide in-person services or whether, you know, those types of things, they needed to have an understanding about local market health information. Well, they, they all needed to do it at the same time. But how do we get that in a common manner? And how do we get that consistently? And we, we saw some interesting situations as they were going through it. If, you know, we have one building and five agencies are in that building and they have different information, that leads to different employee experiences. Wait, why, why is that group going in and we're not? And, you know, those types of things. It was a great example of a place where common information was very important, sharing of information. And it's a good example, back to the shared services example of, but we shouldn't all go build it individually. So, so that was a way that we could take some of those protocols and things that we were doing as part of the data strategy and apply them. And so, you know, I think those are some of the outcomes that, that you will see live past, you know, this particular situation and actually help uh, prove some of the thoughts behind, you know, what we want to be able to do long term with the federal data strategy. So what is next for IT modernization and the federal government? I will ask Suzette Kent, former Federal Chief Information Officer, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Suzette Kent, former Federal Chief Information Officer. So, Suzette, IT modernization was a big focus of yours in the beginning and throughout your tenure, and I'd like you to talk about what you think the next iteration of that will look like in the federal space, and in particular, like the Technology Modernization Fund, uh, TMF, and what happens next in this area? When we talk about modernization, it's it it's a word that we apply, you know, because right now, because we have so many systems that, you know, we have a lot of technical debt. 
we have a lot of systems who, ha, you know, have not kept up with the current technology capability. So it's not just a catch-up activity. It should be an ongoing discipline. You know, software has a life cycle, just like we maintain roads and parks and, you know, our, our you know, satellite infrastructure or you, you, you know, take care of your own health and physical fitness it, it, it's an ongoing process. So when we say modernization, what we're really trying to say is ways that we keep the technology infrastructure that is delivering on mission current. And unfortunately, right now, we're in a place with a lot of catching up. We are doing things, though, that as we use commercially available solutions and as we leverage solutions where there's a commitment to keeping them modern and we're using things from a competitive marketplace, that gives us a path. For some of the old ones, you know, whether it's, you know, COBOL or whatever, as we move off of those, we have to move into something that we have a vision for long-term maintenance. It's not just off of A over to B and then don't go anywhere from there because then, you know, in 10 years, we're just right back in the same situation. So when we say modernization, it is that, it is the journey, you know, to, to get to that place. What's really hard and what, what you know, I struggle with and what I think we still see, um, it's still a struggle. And we're going to have to keep asking questions. I, it, I've been pleased that um, there's been more congressional interest lately. There's been both the modernization hearing. I know we'll see the FATAR scorecard. There's been a lot of discussion about the technology modernization fund. Senator Hassan uh, directly sent letters to some agencies that where there's some responses that are due soon. Uh, we had some laws passed on both digital and um, information management. Elevating that discussion is one of the ways that we get all the right resources to the modernization. When I see resources, it's not just money. It is making it a priority for the agency. It is money, but it's also the uh, time and attention of the IT staff and investment in those skills. And I'll give you, here's a really hard specific example. If I'm using 90% of my staff to run this antiquated system that I have to run kind of in three batch cycles because it's so old um, that, that that's what it takes to run the volume. And at the same time, I'm trying to convert to a new one. That's more money, more people, and it's taking on a level of risk during that transition. Those are tough things that we have to manage. And, we, and, and the cost of doing nothing is not zero. And that, that's, a, that's a really important message. I felt like I said a thousand times and people would just sometimes, sometimes people would get it. Sometimes they'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. But, but, but sometimes a budget would come out and it would say zero. Um, or, or, you know, someone would say, oh, we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. Um, it's like not changing your oil on your car. Eventually it is going to stop. And then you have a bigger problem. So how it's been really great that we're we're getting some of the attention around modernization because that's going to help with the realization that we're going to have to continue to support an existing system and take on that extra work of transitioning and that those sometimes are not short-term and when I say short term, I mean one year money, one or two year election cycle events. Um, so it takes a broader commitment. 
And that's why when, you know, when I say resources, I start with the management and, and, and the executive commitment to staying on that path and the importance of a multi-year strategy, whether it's a 10-year federal data strategy or it's a five-year um, application rationalization plan. Because of balancing the risk and the continuity of service, it's not a lights on, lights off kind of easy thing. Um, and, and those are discussions that we have to we have to elevate to what the citizens get out of it and why is it important and what outcomes. Because some of the you know technical details sometimes seem less interesting to some people. Hopefully, not not to us, hopefully, and not to your listeners. Um, but 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 there are longer journeys, and um, we have to keep elevating. Why are we doing this? What are we? You know, why? What what's going to be the outcome? And that's what it's about. So, Suzette, I've interviewed a lot of federal CIOs, both at the agency and department levels, and at the bureaus. And a number of them are, you know, depending on where they are in the in maturity level, they they are even talking about going beyond IT modernization into transformation. So in the future, I'd like your perspective, how much focus should be placed on IT transformation rather than IT modernization? And how can we leapfrog into the future without repeating the IT mistakes of the past? I, I, I get where where you're going. Um, and they're pointing to the concept that we talked about a little bit when you asked me about digital transformation and the difference between just going to a better thing, which in many cases, cybersecurity or you know scale performance, going to that better thing might be you know a great step. But true transformation is rethinking the business process. And that requires disruption many times and collaboration of many, many different disciplines. And that's a different type of journey inside the federal government. So when, when, I'm, when I'm gonna change a business process, I need the business leaders at the table. I need HR at the table. I need risk. I need, you know, the um, you know audit and control team. Of course, I need the IT team. Um, you know, I might need customer service. I might have to go out and talk to citizens, and that might mean, uh, you know, I'm not saying the word marketing because I but but some type of customer engagement. That's a lot bigger. I'm, I need the CFO to understand what we're doing and the financial and budget teams to be at the table during that journey. That's a transformation. And that's a lot bigger deal. I think people get really excited about it because that is leapfrog. And that that is an even more exciting success and outcome, you know, for, for those that we're serving, you know, for the mission you know, protocols, but it takes vision and it takes a lot of hard work and it takes all those groups, you know, kind of being at the table. And it's different than somebody running, you know, a project that doesn't have a, a broad impact. That's a broad impact. And uh, I hope we see more of those things because there's huge opportunities. So Suzette, during your tenure as federal CIO, we did see a surge in the use of robotic process automation, RPA, and interest in intelligent automation. You know, so I was wondering, what are some of the emerging technology issues we should anticipate in the near future? And the other side of that is what emerging technologies 
uh, do you believe offer the most significant benefits over the long term? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to answer part of your question because uh, I, I use this as an example with with different people when I'm talking about technology. There are so many exciting technologies, but it needs to fit the purpose and it needs to fit the thing that you're trying to do. And we are continually developing new things all the time. I was out at one of our national labs and you know, talking to one of the teams about some of the things that they're doing with high performance compute. And they said, you know, three years ago when we were speculating kind of where we would be, we were 2000% off. And, and that was a great thing. Well, but it was great because it had increased, the capabilities had increased 2000% more than they even thought was possible you know, three years ago when they were doing that. And so, so, you know, I look and say, you know, why aren't we trying certain things? You know, how, how can we move faster? And that was always my question is, you know, just start, start with a, a you know, a pilot in, in a particular area and, and, you know, we're going to learn and expand. And, and here, here's how I often looked at RPA and I used RPA in industry very often. There's a lot of, manual tasks. There's a lot of very repeatable thing. There's a lot of information that we pull from different places and put it together on a report. And then we go do something else with it. Um, it's a way to ensure that those processes run more smoothly without error. And we allow, you know, our human components and our team members to go focus on the really hard stuff that you can't put into a simple yes, no grid, something like that. And I'll go back to that uh, kind of transformation example I was sharing. I often used RPA to help automate something so that I could take those same people and, and, and work with them on a transformation activity so that I, I won't say the word self-fund-ish, but <laughs> use, you know, create some efficiencies so that I could go do other things. That's, you know, to me, that's very often RPA in its best use. Now, go back to your analogy when you ask the difference between modernization and transformation. Sometimes, you know, with RPA, we shouldn't just make a bad process go faster. Um, we should, you know, use as an opportunity to improve a process, you know, as well. And sometimes because we can move so quickly we move through things without really stepping back and looking at the whole thing in the end. That's the kind of the, um, the risk in a technology that's so impactful and so easy to apply that someone goes and looks at it in their own little box and they make a step in a big process better, but they don't make the whole process better. So again, it's a great tool. Where are you using it? What are you using it for? If I'm answering questions on a customer service line much faster for a citizen, if I took five people and they don't have to put together the data from six different sources and spend two weeks comparing that data, that's a great use. But using that same example, why did I have the data in five different places, right? So... Anyway, that that's ways to think about it. I, uh, you know, you, you've, I get really excited about what we can do with data, what we can use with the broad spectrum of automation, whether you call it AI, machine learning, um, different types of automation, um, you know, image recognition, 
um, predictive analytics. Uh, There's just so, so many potential, you know, applications, whether it's growing food or recovering from events or creating, you know, safety in the workplace. There's so many things that, that we can do. They're all exciting. What needs to be done to develop and reskill the federal IT workforce? I will ask Suzette Kent, former federal chief information officer, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Suzette Kent, former Federal Chief Information Officer. Suzette, we've talked about technology, the advancement, modernization. We talked about technology policy and how to get both of them married up. And I'd like to transition to the people, the workforce, the federal IT workforce. Uh, In your mind, uh, what can be done in the areas of training and reskilling of this workforce and what specific skills do you believe will be especially needed for the success of the federal IT community going forward? As technology change, those who are delivering the technology have to understand that, right? Soup to nuts. Um, the hands-on pieces, the risk pieces, cybersecurity, ongoing maintenance and development, what comes next, the, the whole aspect. So that should almost be a bread and butter kind of investment, meaning if I'm going to invest in this thing, I need to know how to operate it. And I need my team to be able to operate it. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to leverage my vendor partners and I'm, and I'm not going to have some of, you know, um, you know, the, the, you know, kind of technology ecosystem. Maybe I'm, I'm buying something as a service. That's fine, but I still need to know how to operate it. Um, and I need to know what changes in that risk profile. So, so I think from a, from a technology perspective, our IT teams have to not only know different types and sets of technology, you know, and the security protocols around those, they have to understand the business. They have to understand the business every single day, the, the full process that makes them a better partner. They have to understand, you know, how to transition and how to ask the, the important questions as we move across different technologies or we make risk, you know, based decisions. Um, they have to understand the 
priorities of mission. And you know that's important. That's one of the reasons, whether it's through the CIO executive order or some of the things with law, that we wanted to ensure that that technology team members have a seat at the table with the mission-facing teams. And I think some of the best success stories uh, have been, uh, you know, I, I loved one of the ones with you know Department of Labor and you know Gundeep will laugh because I, I you know was like I, I want to see the whole thing. <laughs> um, but, but where the mission team sat down with the technology team and redesigned um, an, an entire process and took something that had multiple pieces of equipment down to, you know, one, you know, tiny thing, fully functioning, great outcome. You know, similar discussions, you know, with other agencies, you know, kind of in that same vein where, it's not just a, I want this, go build it and come back to me when it's done. It, it, it's involvement, you know, the one of the projects going on with HUD where they are uh, transforming some legacy systems um, into newer technology. The business is at the table and the business had a rule. You can't disrupt the business. Don't, don't disrupt us with, a, you know, while you're transitioning, but we want to be at the table too. Part of their success is because the business is deeply embedded um, and the individuals understand the business. So, you know, if, if I, those were a lot of words and you had different pieces of your question, we have to continue to invest. We have to make it a mandate that if we are, if we're going to, let's say I'm going to move all this stuff to the cloud and I'm not going to operate a data center in this way, that means that somebody's still operating a data center. We still have to understand the risk. That changes the nature of the job. So while we're making that transition, we should be training the individuals who are going to continue to support that to switch from maybe a hands-on set of activities to a how they're going to manage certain risk protocols and what kind of performance indicators they needed to be looking at, what kind of questions they needed to be at, need to be asking the service provider. The, the investment in people has to be side by side with our investment in software equipment and transformation. So Suzette, focusing on the future a little more, what do you see as the most significant future challenges or immediate challenges facing the federal IT community? And what more can be done to place the federal government in a better position to address these challenges? Um. So, so we've talked about a couple of immediate challenges, right? Some of the immediate challenges are, you know, catching up in spaces of legacy um, area. And the reason we need to catch up is driven by, by a couple of, you know, high profile things. The quality, we, we want to improve the quality of service. Uh, we want to improve the reach of services and we want to ensure that they are secure. And, you know, most of us know some of the legacy systems have, you know, are, are create risk. And um, the cybersecurity world is getting tougher and tougher and more nefarious every single day. So, you know, that that's part of modernization. Our path forward is leveraging data and many of these automated capabilities to accelerate how we can do things. And, um, you know, many of the old legacy systems that we had, uh, the, you know, if, if, if we are in a place where we have 
more advanced identity and data protocols, we can actually be more flexible in how services are consumed. And we actually may not need to, to you know, do some of the older things that we used to do. Um, and, and here's an example. You, you can go, at, you don't buy an encyclopedia anymore. You can Google anything, right? You can, but, but, I, but I'll use that same example with some of the places that we um, provide federal service. Why do I have to fill out 15 forms? I actually just need one thing. And if I can ask for that one thing and, and, and drive whether I'm qualified for that thing or not through data, why do I have to execute an antiquated process that pass things from agency to agency or you know, different types to, to understand if I'm entitled for a certain set of services? And a citizen can get an answer quickly. So, so that, that's a kind of, you know, so, so we have to stay on the, the, the data protocol. And then, you know, we talked about the investments in the workforce. That's an area that's really um, important, not just investments in the workforce, but continuing to just look at how we work period. And what I mean by that, you know, you, you guys know the numbers as well as I do, and you, particularly when you look at the um, makeup of the federal workforce, we're not reflective of, you know, from an, a, you know, whether you say age or whether you look at, you know, different types of diversity, we're not, we're not reflective of the citizens that we serve. Uh, so, so we have to get there. There's a whole bunch of different tactics, whether it's and those are in recruiting, you know, retention and investment once individuals there. You know, that could be like three other shows. Um, but but why those are critical, um, we also ha should be asking the question now when we see so many of our business partners who are willing to work remotely for longer periods of time, is, is it an opportunity to, to look at um, rethink our footprint? And we've talked about alternative pathways and you saw places where, where you know, we know that we can train, that, that individuals can gain cybersecurity skills and be successful in certain roles through those qualifications. Why should I care if they're in, you know, Peoria, Illinois or Alexandria, Louisiana? If they can do the job and and kind of rethinking some of our our workforce footprint uh, may help us in that continuous investments also you know it, it's good for driving both the economics um, you know and the diversity of the workforce and you know i'll I'll close on the the people investment with the way we ended that last question is for every single thing I want to do and, and where I want to go, you know, I'm, and I'm saying that broadly as, as a technology, you know, not me personally, but us as a technology um, aspirational, we should be making the commensurate people investment, you know, with those technology investment. Who knows this? How are we going to keep it current? What are we going to do? What, you know, how does this change our risk profile? Um, and how do we operate this most efficiently? If I can't answer those questions, I'm missing a part of my modernization or my transformation effort. Suzette, I'd like to I'd like to transition to the topic of leadership and the differences between certain leadership qualities that are very effective in the private sector 
uh, versus certain leadership qualities that are effective in the public sector. How does a leader in the private sector differ from the leadership qualities that are most effective, say, in the public sector? And what are you going to miss most about your public sector and public service experience? <laughs> um, you're good on the question today. So I, 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 uh, and I'm going to answer you in reverse there. What I'm going to miss every single day is how passionate people are about the mission. And that excited me so much. Um, you know, I, I, again, I could go agency to agency and tell you a story or 10 um, about working with each of them on different aspects of their, of their mission. And they are so purpose-driven. What, what um, I won't miss is the process inside the federal government sometimes is like an obstacle course. And I use this an analogy with someone else. I said, you know, I could put a private sector CIO and a public sector CIO side by side and ask him to get to the same place. And the private sector CIO is not necessarily on a straight line path, but they know where the funding's coming from. They have the mandate from the CEO. They have a, you know, air cover to get everybody to the table. They're not going to have somebody vote to change path in the middle as much. You know, sometimes, you know, mergers, acquisitions happen. But anyway, they're, they're going down what I would call a straighter path. My government CIO climbs up the monkey bars, jumps over a building, shimmies down, and that's before they actually get to put a, a bid out on the street, right, for the thing. And, and some of it is like an obstacle course. And so when people would say, it's going to take me six months to even get, you know, an, R, an RFP out or to get a contract in place, that blew my mind that, you know, now I, I understand why I understand why many of these rules were put out there for fair competition and full disclosure and to ensure performance. But those are one of those areas where we have a lot of opportunity to, to ask questions of, do we, what do we really need today? You know, there's some things that we're still operating under like cost laws that were, that were passed in the forties. And that's, I, I'm pretty confident that when our lawmakers wrote those laws, they weren't thinking about buying technology as a service, right? So <laughs> those things weren't there. So, you know, I, I will not miss how complex um, some of the, you know, to get to the goal line is, but I think that's a mandate and a challenge. And, you know, I, I took it on in some ways. I hope, I know Maria, you know, I know Grant Schneider and, and the OFCIO team, you know, whether it's, you know, Jordan or, or Shiloh, and they're taking and the CIOs and the CIO council. Um, you know, th th there wasn't a meeting where Dave Shive wouldn't say, how can we, you know, and follow by some, do something better. And, and, you know, now with the CDO council operating, uh, you know, they're doing, you know, they're in a place to start asking some of those same questions. Um, that needs to continue. And, and the, it shouldn't be as hard, you know, as it is. But there's amazingly talented people. Um, I was very, you know, thrilled and surprised. And, and as a person, 
Um, I would challenge many other people that are that are in the private sector side. You know, I, I thought of all the agencies. You know, when I was on the consulting side, or or when I was at you know J.P. Morgan, I thought of the agencies kind of in the same way. Is I'm here to enable the goals of a client. I'm here to enable the goals of you know someone else through the things that we can bring to the table, and that's the way I approach my personal contributions, you know, wherever I am, how do I get the roadblocks out of the way? How do we solve a problem that we haven't been, that that hasn't been solved before? And as somebody from private sector who, you know, maybe only saw government from the outside, I'm absolutely honored. Um, And it was a privilege to serve in the role. And it's something that I think many of uh, individuals in industry should see and contribute to, because that will fire them up to fix some of this and to make sure that whether it's with our lawmakers or um, members of the administration, that some of the things that we've talked about today are at the top of the list. They're not way down there, number 32 or 35. They're, They're up there at the top of the list, their priority, because as our world evolves, and the expectations of our American public, more of our services are going to be delivered in a way, um, and more of our mission are going to be served in a way that requires a strong technology foundation. And, and, and those are the things that, you know, we're, we all have to stay on the same page. So, Suzette, thank you for your time today. And more importantly, thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thank you very much. This has been the Business of Government Hour a conversation with former Federal Chief Information Officer Suzette Kent. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on the intersection of government, leadership, and technology. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thank you for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Join us next week for a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, focusing on leading through uncertain times with Chester Elton, co-author with Adrian Gostick of Leading with Gratitude. Why is gratitude an essential quality and an effective leader today? What practices can help leaders in uncertain times? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more on the Business of Government Hour special edition. That's next week on Federal News Network.